This is the Books Podcast presented by Tim Hague. You have to cause some offence. She was megalomaniacal, she was arrogant. Public lesbians. I ask you, gentlemen of the jury, is this the kind of book you'd like your wives and servants to read? Difficult Women is one of those books that when you finish reading it, you're absolutely dying to get hold of the author and talk about it some more, I mean, a lot more in this case. So I am delighted that Helen Lewis is joining me via Skype, because these are the dark days of the COVID-19 lockdown. Helen, thank you for, uh, well, coming, and um, thank you for the book. Well, thank you very much for um, inviting me on to chat about it. I really did enjoy it. It was an absolute page turner, um, and I learned so much. Um, as well as, uh, you know, going over... Hey, it's always good to say, yeah, I knew that. And, oh, but I didn't know that. <laughs> That's always good news. Right. And I and I kind of thought, it's been funny reading the reviews because some of them... There was a one sentence in one of them that made me laugh, which was like, some of this material will be familiar, you know, to anybody who's read any of the several group biographies of the suffragettes in recent years. And I thought, all right, calm down. <laughs> How many people actually have, you know, and, and, and that's fine. Also, I wanted to write it for, you know, a bright 17-year-old who hasn't read any of this stuff and be, you know, welcome back to that, let alone, as you say, people who maybe are interested in the subject but don't feel that they've done the reading list. Uh, yeah. I was making notes and I, I wrote down, this is my kind of feminist. And then I scratched that out and don't, don't, don't tell her that. <laughs> it's like it, like she's supposed to care what, whether, whether I like her or not. <laughs> so I decided not to ask you that one. I do, though, because it makes sense. If you're supposed to be an effective political communicator, you know, that, that matters. The idea that people find you, you know, pleasant to be with and you know or com- whether or not you know pleasant to be with is the right word but you know uh, they find you stimulating to be with they agree with your ideas you know all of that that idea that you you know that your personality is kind of attractive whether or not it's in a kind of horrifying compelling way or kind of pleasantly compelling way is really important yeah, but who wants to be hectored for 400 pages uh, about something that they've paid their own good money to read and to be told that they're a bad person so look let's talk about the book difficult women a history of feminism in 11 fights it well to some extent it's a corrective isn't it uh, i mean uh, you, at one point you say that uh, that modern feminism has a tendency to fall into two modes empty celebration or shadow boxing with outright bastards uh, you've got a more grown up approach well, I hope so. But um, I think it's really that bit is applicable to all types of modern politics. You know, no, I think there true. are lots of you know people who want to say the right things um, and be seen to be doing the right things. Um, but actually, you have to cause some offence. You have to, you have to go in there. You have to mix things up. You have to say that your priority, you know, comes first above anyone else's. All of which doesn't really tend to make you popular. So I think there's, I, you know, I, I look around, particularly places like Twitter, and see people what I think of as kind of pushing on an open door. Or, you know, doing some pretty furious tweets about how they're against war and, you know, against poverty and all of that kind of stuff. But you have to, for me, the interesting question is, well, hang a minute, who, you know, who's causing all the bad things in life? And and actually, what, you know, what can we do to actually get rid of them rather than saying that we're against them? And it turns out one of those things is, you know, is by being difficult. You say in the book that, uh, I think you call it woke washing, don't you? When, uh, when companies say, oh, we have an LGBT uh, policy, but they don't actually make any differences. And you don't have a lot of time for that. 
Well, no, because I don't think it's actually really making things better for the lives of LGBT people, particularly. Um, and that should be the measure, really, of any kind of progressive action is actually whose life is it making better? And is it making life better for the chief executive of a company that loves being on a you know a power list? Or is it making life better for the actual people at the at the sharp end of those discriminations? And, you know, if you are um, a low paid worker in a, in a company that's, you know, barely scraping together minimum wage with very few employment protections it's not really particularly exciting to you that they've got a kind of corporate diversity program so i think that is where always i would suggest the focus should be to be honest i'm amazed how restrained uh, women actually the rest of us but women are about the the glacial progress that we've made because we have come quite a long way your book uh, is is about you know the progress we've made but also there's quite a, i mean the equal pay act was what 1970 and I think the gender pay act is uh, this mm-hmm. gender pay gap is still like ten percent, even for uh, full time working people. Leave aside the the part timers who are even worse uh, treated, um, and 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 that's that's a part of what you want to get at as well. There's a, there's a way to go. Yeah, but I think the trouble is that it has become more complicated. So I think the thing about equal pay is there are still cases, even though we legally we have the right to equal pay, where that's obviously not happening. Um, you know, Samira Ahmed's tribunal at the BBC made a very clear case that some people are designated as stars and therefore everything that they do is sort of rated higher. And those people are more likely to be men. I mean, if you look at the, the BBC pay gap figures, they've been making progress on them. But that's kind of about a, a culture of who we value. But even get away from that, from that straightforward discrimination, the arguments become harder and harder to make. Because as you say, full-time employees, that's a really interesting part of the picture because it's not sort of some freak occurrence that it is happens to be that women are more likely to be in part-time work. And they are. I think 40% of women in employment are in part-time work compared with 13% of men. It's because they're the ones who are, by and large, taking their foot off the pedal in career terms when they want to raise a family. Um, and, you know, those effects last well beyond the couple of years that children tend to be at home um, and throughout the rest of their careers. And women are still paying in their 60s for decisions that they made in their 20s and 30s. But that's a harder argument to make because people will invoke the idea of choice. You know, well, you chose to have children. Uh, well, you know, you chose to do this. And that's kind of all very well. But, the, you know, one of the things that I've tried to make the case in the book is we should always look at the you know the the context in which choices are made, as opposed to just in fact you say individual choices are all very well, but the the context in which they're made is sort of more important, right? Because that's about society, and that's the bit that you kind of need to change, rather than you know. And feminism has been kind of guilty of this about concentrating on the individual level and you seem to you, you really do see the limits of that when you talk about things like you know oh women should be more up uh, you know upfront about asking for a pay rise and that's fair enough but we have to take into account the fact that you know women who are seen as pushy at work are penalized more they might be concentrated in industries which are fundamentally very low paid such as care work so there isn't money there to to do that and also that they might possibly ask and simply not get one and there is research that I've included in the book showing that so this idea that what's happening is that women are underpaid because they're doing the wrong jobs and they're not being aggressive enough in, in pursuing their careers is really tempered by the evidence that we have that suggests that's not always the full explanation. I've sort of brought you into the uh, into the discussion from, from the back end of it. You, you approach this in the book by looking back at the fights that we've already had, the 11 fights in, in, in the time, and the women who, who fought them. And I don't know if that was the, the, the sort of the starting point of your, of your interest, but uh, one of the things is that you, you, want to, you want to get away from whitewashing the heroines, of, of saying these are just these are marvellous people who had no faults, 
else. Uh, they because they were complicated, flawed like everybody else. And uh, you you want to um, say that's okay, don't you? You want to say th- these women uh, fought the battles for us, and and we you know we can celebrate that without having to turn them into icons. Yeah, there's something kind of hysterically myopic about the idea that you know we've now achieved the full final finished version of what society looks like and everyone else before us was a kind of you know blighted creature who you know on this onward march to to progress because i'm sure there are things that we take absolutely for granted in society now that in 50 years time people will think are abhorrent um you know i always think about this i mean i'm i'm a meat eater but i do think that it's entirely possible that in 100 years time people think it was that factory farming was completely um you know we were intelligent animals in case in these horrible conditions that's entirely possible so i think you have to be slightly humble about the fact that your own behavior might not look that brilliant to future generations and to apply that kind of you know the i guess the kind of allowance you would want people to make for you retrospectively to other people and other pioneers and to recognize that you know if you're talking about anybody pre-1900 their attitudes to class and race are going to probably be what we would now think of as unenlightened. And that doesn't mean we should excuse them or, you know, or give them a pass on that. It just means it's much more interesting to understand people in the context of the time in which they lived um, and what strategies they had to use in that time that may be different now. You know, um, Victorian women's campaigners were obsessed with respectability. Well, wouldn't you have been? It was a time in which respectability was incredibly highly prized. And actually the arguments for things like women's education were that, you know, this was the kind of thing that would turn out respectable, intelligent young ladies. It would have been a very stupid argument to make to say, this is step one, uh, you know, uh, overthrowing the male race and and marching onwards to, you know, glorious female domination of everything because, you know, people would have gone, "Uh, I'm not actually up for that and reacted against it. But equally well, at the same time, you know, those respectability arguments can really backfire on women because you can end up in situation i think as with the benefit system from the now where you know welfare queens and single moms and all this kind of stuff this rhetoric comes out that is fundamentally about the fact that women don't deserve benefits if they have lived in a way that social conservatives you know don't approve of so it's a double-edged sword but trying to pick out when that's you know, a tactic that's worth using when it's counterproductive is really interesting to me. Yeah, you you, you say, uh, in fact, one of the quotes in the book is, we don't have to be perfect to deserve equal rights. Uh, and, and another mm. one is that you say uh, role models, you know, setting up role models is a kind of, um, you call it inspiration porn. Can we talk about one or two of the uh, the women and, and, and how they <laughs> fall short, perhaps, of our current standards um but you, 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 we can still we can still look at them and say well they were they were a step on the way um you, you talk about mary stopes and uh, her approach to eugenics yeah i mean mary stopes is an extremely flawed woman both in political terms and in personal terms you know she was megalomaniacal she was arrogant she was um you know very selfish i guess you know it was also a life marked by tragedy she wasn't allowed to give birth to her first child in the way that she wanted and the baby was stillborn um she eventually had her only son at the age of 43 um and pretty much you know smothered him yes and and wouldn't let him um, marry the but, woman you know, he wanted and yeah, because she was short-sighted. Well, that was you know that was her cover story for it anyway. But um, you know, and, and other people in the birth control movement found her very difficult to work with. Um, but the thing that interests me about eugenics is not saying eugenics is bad, which is a fairly banal and obvious statement to make from you know our perspective now. But asking what were the conditions that led to it being arising, and if you look at what happened in the First World War in Europe, the deaths of so many men, you know, just such an incredible loss and waste of life. 
then it isn't surprising to me that actually what happened then was concerns about you know whether or not you know depopulation was happening whether or not all these women who'd moved into the factories and gained more economic independence didn't want to have you know nine children like their, their mothers had had and under those circumstances you know combine that with the paternalism of the age and it's very easy to see where that kind of toxic brew that led to eugenics came from and then obviously that then gets mixed in with concerns about racial mixing which is uh, you know not a strain particularly that mary stokes was involved with she was um definitely more lent towards anti-semitism than what we would now think of as um you know black or muslim forms of eugenics which is more what's really happening in contemporary society when people talk about things like white genocide or the muslimification of europe but that's what's interesting to me is is rather than saying this is a purely historical phenomenon, why could someone as intelligent as Mary Stopes end up being interested in this? And actually, can we learn anything from that about why today people are still saying the same things, right? So I write about feminism in the far right sometimes, and there is a very lively strain, this mass shooter that there was in New Zealand is a subscriber to something called you know, the Great Replacement Theory, which is the idea that Muslim populations are growing much faster than white populations, and that Europe is kind of turning brown. And you know, and then really the way to deal with this is anti-feminism. It's about the fact that women have become too, too liberated, too divorced at home. Um, and so you can easily see where the currents are in mainstream politics that you know provide a fertile petri dish for this stuff. And you, you know some of that you can learn about from looking back to the 20s and 30s. And that's why I find history so endlessly fascinating is it gives you a way to talk about the present with a level of detachment that maybe allows you to see your own circumstances more clearly. Can we talk about a couple of the other ones? I, I, I found lots to interest me in the book and lots, lots. I mean, there were people, of course, that I, I was familiar with, but I came a lot more familiar. Um, and then one or two that I should have known. Maureen Cahoon. Mm. Tell me about Maureen Cahoon. And uh, she's almost contemporary with us. I should know who she is. And I've more or less never heard of her. Yeah, I'm born in the 1920s. And at the time of speaking, she's still alive. Um, and she was the first uh, openly gay MP. She was lesbian. Um, so lots of people, I certainly did, casually thought that was Chris Smith from the new Labour government. Yeah, me too. Actually, he was the first um, LGB MP to come out voluntarily. Um, Cahoon was outed by the Daily Mail um, after leaving her husband, who was a journalist, for uh, a campaigner called Babs Todd. Uh, and they had a housewarming party which had a picture of two, a cartoon of two women kissing on it, which found its way um, to Nigel Dempster, the diary columnist at the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> and he was a sweetheart, wasn't he? Well, yes. I mean, the, the, the suggestion really is that one of their fellow guests was applying for a visa to America to become a teacher. And had they been outed as a, as a lesbian, they would have been refused that on grounds of quote unquote deviancy. Which is one of those things that you think, well, that's, you know, that's astonishing, but that's within quite a lot of people's living memory that you could be denied a visa to work in another country like America because you were gay. Um, and uh, you know, Maureen's story is a reminder, really, of in one lifetime how far we've come. Because I think we should always, you know, focus on that, not just on the struggles that are left, but to be appreciative of the fact that people like her put in these incredible sacrifices. I mean, she got into trouble with some comments about Enoch Powell, where she tried to make the case, really, that the Labour Party talked a good game on race, but didn't really listen to its base um, and their concerns, which is something that still gets Labour into trouble now, because it's, you know, it's read as being a kind of defence of far-right rhetoric. But 
she really got de- well she was nearly deselected but she went through a long battle eventually managed to be reselected but lost her seat at the 1979 election really that was because she was a lesbian and she was an out lesbian this is the thing i find absolutely extraordinary the courage that she required at the time to do that when there were so few public lesbians um is extraordinary to me and i think probably even lgbt people in their 30s let alone in their 20s it's very hard to go back in time and conjure up what you know what even just that generation above them's experience of of life was and of of being in the closet and of that sense of constant worry about being outed and and what it would mean for your career if you were you see her her story is fascinating i was really interested to read it i was equally interested when I, I realised that I, I didn't know her, because um, that seems to me highly striking. Um, I, I like to imagine that I'm not completely ignorant, and I, I should know her. I'll tell you one I, di- I do know, and I will do just one more uh, of your of your uh, studies, if if that's mm. all right. Erin Pitsy, of course, I do remember Erin Pitsy when she was mm. this champion, this fiery champion of uh, of uh, women's rights in setting up the Chiswick Women's Refuge, um, which was oh, when did she do? that it was 60s 1971 71 um but she's had this bizarre journey to uh, anti-feminist men's rights the uh, the men's right activists that she's associated with how does that happen well that was the whole question that i wanted to answer in that chapter and um I, i too find her story absolutely fascinating and i found meeting her really fascinating as well because she wasn't rude to me at all you know um and she wasn't guarded about being interviewed she was actually very open and very very honest with me she just allows a level of latitude for you know anti-women rhetoric from men's rights activists that she wouldn't she would you know find was hysterical and anti-men among feminists and and I think that's a really interesting story about political polarization right about the fact that we're all much readier to let our own side off hook than well you know whereas we're very easy to see the moat in the eye of our opponents but also the fact is you know I think it's about whether or not you're a feminist. And I and I think I agree with Julie Bindle, the activist, who said, you know, I don't think Erin Pitsy was ever a feminist. She didn't buy the idea of something called patriarchy or have a, a you know, male a, a, an analysis of male violence that is now the feminist one. She was somebody who saw something terrible happening and was brave enough and strong enough and determined enough to go and do something about it. And that's what's extraordinary about her is, you know, it's really, again, it's one of those things that's really hard to remember now when there are, you know, refuge and women's aid are absolutely mainstream organisations. But there weren't domestic violence shelters. You know, it, the words domestic violence weren't really commonly used. It was wife beating. Um, and it was seen as being yeah, a kind which, of perk which makes of marriage. It, yeah, or, it does. It, that, that phrase does it, doesn't it? Or, it says, you know, it? or it was something that you did if you were being nagged or it was, you know, about being provoked into it. And men would frequently get off um, murder charges if they killed their wife because of what, you know, we now call them nagging and shagging defence. You know, if their yeah. wife had cheated on them or if she was deemed to have nagged them, then this was seen as a being, well, you know, well, who wouldn't in that those circumstances you know it was sort of kind of you know that was it was seen as a management responsibility and you know there were debates in parliament i write about the first domestic abuse bill debate in parliaments where you know people say things that they still say now like oh the trouble is that women don't report it and um jack ashley the mp who was promoting the bill said well no i've, I've got lots of testimony from women that they do go and report it and it just isn't taken complete you know t- taken seriously and the police still have problems now with prosecuting domestic violence not least because it's often 
you know, both sides will say the other started it or women are very reluctant to testify because they're in a coercive relationship where, you know, someone swings between affection to them and violence towards them and, you know, cuts off all their means of support. And I wanted to deal with some of the difficulty of that because it is really, really hard. You know, there are such a thing as dysfunctional relationships in which both sides contribute to it. And saying that is not to excuse the people who go on to then kill their partner in those relationships. But it does suggest that we are fundamentally failing to tackle a whole culture around this stuff. So can we say then that Erin Pitsy was, well, she was, she was good at dealing with a problem on the ground, but not, not so good at the big picture, maybe. And if so, do we have a working definition of feminism? I mean, I, can I press you or is, is that going to be just a terribly underhand approach? <laughs> No, I mean, I go with um, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's one, you know, feminist is someone who believes in the social, political and economic equality of the sexes. And you can unpack that and to various degrees. And I think a lot of the things that I've written about in the book, particularly, are can, you know, about legal reforms um, and equality under the law, which is, I think, a, a particular type of argument to make and not an easy argument to make, but at least to most people, it makes sense. Um, the harder arguments to make are maybe the policy and economics-based ones, which are about often the fact that men and women are different and they live different lives. And I'm really talking about you know, bio- biology and reproduction here, that actually if we say you know, there's no pay gap being a very good example, right? Between full-time workers in their 20s, there's no difference between men and women. And what that suggests is the fact that, well, women can work like men. They can do the late nights. They can do the, you know, changing plans at the last minute. They can, you know, they can move to another city if they need to for work. Then they're able to compete on entirely equal terms and be rewarded on equal terms. So that kind of overt, you know, girls can't do this job is, is in, you know, is, is receding slightly. But unfortunately, you can't make those gender neutral policies when you get a bit later on in life and only one half of the workforce is growing other humans inside them and then feeding other humans from their own bodies because that's a fundamental divide. And treating them the same means penalising women for not, you know, for having babies, basically. Ah, yes, of and that's a harder argument to make, I think. So there, in fact, are women's issues that are specific and, and that need to be addressed in order to create a level playing, playing field. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's one of the things that modern feminism is quite uneasy with, because it feels like it's sort of reducing women to biology to um, or implying that biology is destiny to even mention it. And of course, that's that's not true. You know, we have this really great thing about, you know, the social model of disability, right, which is the problem isn't your know, disability necessarily. It's about a society that's built, you know, for people without that disability. So a society that assumes that everyone can get upstairs, assumes that everyone can hear all that kind of stuff. And the same thing is true about, you know, a social model built around the idea that everybody lives one particular type of life um, is exactly the problem. The problem isn't the fact that, we, you know, people are having children. They've been doing that for some time now, and I <laughs> suspect we might carry on into the future. The problem is, is, is not taking that into account when you design structures and, and government policies. Um, we, we've talked about it and, and, and found it very easy to agree about things. But there are quite serious um, controversies, aren't there, that we could um, investigate. For instance, um, this business of, uh, of, they call them TERFs, don't they? Trans-exclusionary radical feminists, um, where the, the status of some of the excluded minorities is in conflict with perhaps with others. Um, where, where do you stand on that? Um, because... It's it's bound to be a row within within feminism. Well, for a start, I wouldn't personally ever use the word turf because I think it's deliberately insulting, and uh-huh. also it doesn't really accurately to me describe what's going on, which is 
I, I don't know that many people, I think, who would say that trans women should be excluded from feminism. I think there are more people making the argument that there are some contexts in which people born male should be treated differently from people born female. And that's not an absurd suggestion to... It's, you know, the, it's the not, but it is controversial, isn't it? I mean, I, 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 I know um, young people who would, um, would pillory us for saying anything of that sort. Right, and I, with with the best will in the world, I suspect it's very it's much easier to say that at twenty, <laughs> when as you say you're you're working you know full time, you're able to go to university the same as your male peers. Your life is you know as a woman is very much like that of your male peers. It's a harder thing to maintain when you're forty and you know your pelvic floor's gone, and uh, you know and you're seeing mediocre men at work overtake you because you've had a couple of years out of the um, workforce, or you know you've had a miscarriage and had to deal with that, or needed to have an abortion and and, and deal with that. You know, there are things that accumulate because you have a female body. And, you know, look, as you say, it's an incredibly heated subject. And even talking about it is is a huge, I you know, say risk, but it's, it brings a lot of heat on you. But my position on it has always been really simple, which is that woman is a legal and social category as well as a, a biological one. And I think it's perfectly possible for people to transition into it um, and be treated by and large as women, um, even if they weren't born female. That said, Feminism has to talk about the female body um, and what that does because so many of its issues arise from reproduction. You know, you have to go back to Engels talking about the fact that you know, patriarchy comes from control of female reproduction as a kind of resource like labour. Um, and and there are things that going through male puberty gives you, you know, by and large, you are bigger, stronger. Um, and you have a hormonal environment that is, you know, that is just different. So when it comes to sports, for example, if you want to create a level playing field, that's a really difficult question. Um, and the answer is not just to go, why are some women complaining about this? They should just budge up because that's the kind of thing that I find people get, people are very keen to give away, you know, other people's rights. Uh, and, and female participation in sports has always been and still is a, you know, really difficult issue. Um, and, and the answer just to saying, well, there's, there's no conflict at all might just seems very appealing, but is, is the wrong one. Instead, you have to work through it, you know, deferentially to everybody's feelings and individual dignity, but not necessarily, you can't necessarily wave your hand and make it go away. And, and again, that's, but that's difficulty, right? That's what I part mm, what yeah. I write about in the book. And it's just that the, the modern left has sort of fallen out of love with that and, and wants it, wants everything to be very simple and wants there to be good people and bad people, I think. And as you say, outrage has become prized for its own sake. It's it's very easy to to just be strident and and uh, and and narrow and uh, about things and, and not admit of the of the uh, the well the controversies. Here's another controversy. Um, and and I'm going to go a bit devil's advocate. You'll have to forgive me here. I, I, feminism is and always has been in conflict with other programs, other other needs for for pro progress and. Uh, isn't it possible that uh, decent people who accept your analysis might still think that feminism is not necessarily the highest priority? You, you know, Extinction Rebellion probably would say, no, no, I'm sorry, the uh, global warming is more important. And anti-racists or, I don't know, radical socialists or enthusiasts for a donkey sanctuary or whatever, whoever it is, um, might say, that's all very well. Yes, we should have, you know, the progress of feminism, but this issue is even more important. And how do we address that? Oh, people say that all the time. Um, I wouldn't worry about feeling... And always it, you have. Know. You you say in your book, they always have. Yeah, and I think a lot about that great... Um, I'm pretty sure it's Nye Bevan quote, you know, the, the language of priorities is the religion of socialism. 
And I think that's the truth if you're a part of any kind of political movement. You have to ask what you really want and which one do you want to ask for first and what are you prepared to sacrifice in order to, to get it? But like, you know, Tony Benn's five questions for power. Um, you know, what do you want most? Who can give it to you? Who is stopping you from getting it? And how much are you willing to compromise or sacrifice in order to obtain it? And that's those things are never resolved and that you can't really make universal principles around them. You know, there may be some, you know, I, I see a lot of op-eds and I just think, oh, I don't care. I put this in the book, you know, I just don't really care about armpit hair one way or the other. <laughs> yeah. um, it's, you know, I, I agree it's weird that we decided that half of the population had to shave their armpits and the half didn't. But I'm not going to waste particularly a vast amount of time on it. Um, but equally well, if there are other people who feel really strongly about it, that's that's fine. That's, you know, it's my job to convince them to come and join me rather than, um, you know, attack them. And I think that's true of anything else. I think if you're going to make the case, you know, the environmental policy should come above everything else, then that's a perfectly legitimate argument to make. I don't have to agree with you. And it's your job to convince me. Is, is solidarity the big kind in this? It's an interesting question, because I think I think solidarity is very difficult in application because there's a case of sometimes just letting other people get on with their own thing and not sabotaging them. Um, and there's definitely a kind of, <laughs> there's definitely a, a phenomenon of attracting attention to your own cause by slagging off someone else's. And to do that, it's much easier to do that if you create a straw man or straw woman in this case, right? So I read a lot of pieces about how terrible feminism is because it's only interested in CEOs. And you think, is it? Who like be more constructive with your feedback. Who who are you actually talking about here? And it's not a massive surprise to me that female CEOs have summits with other female CEOs talking about how to be a CEO. I'm you know that's that seems to be to be something that we should probably expect. Uh, and actually making those kind of incredibly generalized criticisms just is really mostly about positioning yourself um, as as the one true feminist in my in my view. But there's, you know, equally well, I do take the idea that, you know, there is a specific thing that I would call kind of corporate feminism, which is about this whole industry of sort of diversity panels and, you know, benchmarks and kite marks and and slightly sort of synthetic talking shop type stuff. And I, and I don't particularly feel any solidarity with that. But equally well, I'm, I, I only want to criticise it to the extent that I feel it's probably taking time and effort away from more useful and constructive things. Well, we could talk about another hour on this, but we're, we're not going to. That, that's um, about how much time we've got. Um, Helen, I really enjoyed the book. It's, it, um, we haven't sort of explained how funny it is and how... Uh, uh, and how I was going to um, say... I think I've probably made the book sound like a terrifically tedious policy document by um, by talking about the benefit system. But um, it's so much there isn't. are really it's so much isn't cheap gags about um, about all kinds of stuff in there. Oh, it's funny! It's it's, set, it's fantastically readable, and it's full of it's full of stories. It's full of uh, people's stories and stories of of the uh, of of how the 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 progress was made, uh, which uh, is you know, a real page turner. I I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for having me. As I say, that that is exactly the thing I like most about it, is finding out how weird people were and how weird people still are. You know, when you start writing about people's actual lives, there are things in them that you just think that's you know, that's just completely extraordinary, the sort of coincidences that pile up or the kind of weird facts that you find out along the way. And so 
it's a very strangely written book in the sense of it's not really a group biography. It's, you know, it's, it's divided into these 11 fights, but you, I can't promise anybody who wants to read it, you will meet some absolutely extraordinary cast of characters and it won't just be me banging on about the pay gap. I thought the structure was extremely cunning, very effective. <laughs> Good. We've been talking about Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in the Eleven Fights by Helen Lewis, uh, which is published by Jonathan Cape at £16.99. Helen, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. That was Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hay. Books Podcast is a Green Shoot production. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green-shoot.com.